0: Welcome to the Emergency Medicine Cases Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. EM Cases is part of SREMI, Schwartz Reisman Emergency Medicine Institute, the nonprofit organization dedicated to improving EM care through research and education. The opinions expressed on this podcast are intended for information and education purposes only and should not be used to diagnose, treat, or prevent any medical condition, nor should they be used as a substitute for medical advice from a qualified practicing physician. This is a special edition of EMCase's main episode podcast. A few months ago, I was super honoured to be invited as a guest professor to Calgary Emergency Medicine for their annual Hodsman Lecture Day. The day turned into a series of live podcasts highlighting some of the amazing work that they do, capped off by a lecturer on compassionate care dedicated to the memory of Barbara Tatum. You're about to listen to five live podcasts from the Hodsman Lecture Day in Calgary. The Challenges of Posterior Circulation Strokes with Dr. Katie Lynn, Improving your ED with having an emergency physician lead on shift with Eddie Lang and Mike Betzner. When not to order a troponin and the Here score with Dr. Angie McRae. Ketamine for suicidal ideation with Dr. Marshall Ross. EM support workers for patients with substance use disorder with Dr. Stephanie Vanderberg. And a closely related bonus cast on Mount Sinai Hospital's incredible ED Pathway to Peers program, For youth with mental health issues. A huge thanks to the amazing folks at Calgary EM for being such gracious hosts, and I'm especially thankful to still be alive after Fat Bike Mountain Biking on the ice and snow in the Rocky Mountains with Mike Betzner. All right, here's Dr. Katie Lynn helping us sort out the challenges of posterior circulation strokes. Think about the last time that you called a code stroke for a minute. Or if not a code stroke, whatever the equivalent is at your hospital. I bet you called it on a patient you suspected of an MCA territory type stroke. You know, unilateral limb weakness, maybe facial droop, speech deficit. And we're pretty good at identifying anterior strokes like MCA strokes, getting them fast imaging, and getting them to the stroke team. But what about the patient with posterior circulation stroke symptoms? What about the patient who presents with, say, vertigo and nystagmus or, say, diplopia? Or just the dreaded, weak and dizzy, which of these patients would benefit from lytics or from endovascular therapy? Should we call a code stroke on all these patients? <laughs> that's another rhetorical question. You know, how urgent is it to image these patients? Do all these weak and dizzy patients need immediate imaging of their of their head with a CTCTA? If you work in a place where you need to transport the patient to get a CT scan, how are you going to transport these patients? Which patients need to actually be transported? That's even a bigger deal. So these are just some of the questions that come up in my mind every time I'm faced with a patient with symptoms of a possible posterior stroke. Now, it's pretty amazing to me that, despite the fact that posterior circulation strokes make up 20%, one-fifth of all strokes, that we've dedicated nearly all our time, effort, research, clinical scores, and tools to non-posterior circulate to the anterior strokes. This is especially surprising when we know that we miss three times as many posterior strokes on initial presentation compared to anterior ones. So I can't think of anyone better to help us answer these questions than Dr. Katie Lynn, the only emergency physician I know who's both an emergency doctor and on the stroke team and also a flight transport doc. Welcome, Dr. Lynn.
1: Thanks so much. Very excited to be
0: here. All right. So just so we're all on the same page with posterior circulation ischemia, could you just remind us a bit about the pathophysiology of posterior strokes compared to anterior ones? Like, what are the blood vessels? What are the brain parts? And then what are the symptoms from those brain parts that you're messing up? I like to keep it simple.
1: Absolutely. So we're talking about the vertebral basilar system. To keep it simple and talking about the brain parts, you've got the brain, you got the brainstem. And really, we're talking about the vertebral arteries as they come up the subclavian arteries. At the level of the brainstem, they're joining to become that basilar artery. And then at the very top, they're going to be splitting into your posterior cerebral arteries. And ultimately, we're feeding the brainstem, the cerebellum, the occipital lobes, and the thalami. When we talk about etiology for posterior circulation stroke, it actually differs somewhat from anterior circulation stroke. In the anterior circulation, we're largely talking about large vessel disease, atherosclerosis. Of course, there are other etiologies as well. In posterior circulation stroke, actually the most common cause is embolic. So cardioembolic, that patient with untreated atrial fibrillation and acute
0: onset posterior circulation symptoms. So that's that's a key thing that I, I didn't know. Did you guys know that? That Posterior strokes that the number one cause are embolic, so you know, your patient with atrial fibrillation, that will actually affect how you're going to think about these patients and work them up.
1: Absolutely. And of course, you can get atherosclerotic disease in the posterior circulation as well. But then we also start seeing more of arterial dissections as a cause. So thinking about that young patient who has acute onset neck pain, maybe in the setting of recent trauma or in the setting of neck manipulation.
0: All right. So vertebrobasilar, brainstem, thalami, cerebellum. You've got the most common etiology, which is actually embolic. We can't forget about all those young patients who might even just have a simple fall. You know, maybe they're snowboarding or something and they crank their neck and then the next day they have vertigo. One of the reasons posterior circulation strokes are difficult to diagnose on initial presentation is because the symptoms can be very subtle and and vague. It's rather disconcerting to know that the most common presenting symptom is our favorite symptom of all, dizziness. And the most common symptom is only seen in less than half of patients. And we all know how difficult it can sometimes be to figure out what kind of dizziness. You know, do they have true vertigo that might pique our interest for a stroke? Or is it more presyncope? Or are they just off balance? Or do you just want to put the chart back in the rack and go and have a coffee? So thankfully, the two next most common presenting symptoms, which are usually attributed to anterior strokes, are unilateral limb weakness and dysarthria. So if the patient has these, at least we're thinking about the possibility of a stroke up front. But alas, there are only a small minority of patients that have the long tract signs and dysarthria and, and weakness. Then to throw more wrenches in the mix, the next most common symptoms are gait ataxia, headache, nausea, vomiting, and nystagmus. So now we're getting into some whole other territory that doesn't sound like an ischemic stroke necessarily. And a good chunk of patients with posterior stroke are young patients, as you were mentioning, with zero risk factors, you know, classical stroke risk factors. And again, they get strokes from vertebral artery dissections. That's the most common cause in young patients, at least. So given this mess of sort of vague and nonspecific symptoms, a lack of classical stroke risk factors in some patients... When does posterior stroke appear on your radar? Like, in other words, what are some of the sort of key red flags that you look for on your assessment, given that we miss three times as many of these than anterior strokes and that they're just so difficult to diagnose sometimes?
1: Well, Anton, I know how much we deeply adore the weak and dizzy. Uh, The good news is that most of the time, isolated vertigo or dizziness is very unlikely to be a stroke.
0: Actually, so... So Dr. Lin, so let's talk about that for a minute because isolated vertigo, there is some suggestion in the literature that isolated vertigo alone can be from a stroke. But I would contend that the reason it's it's that way in the literature is because we're just not doing a good enough assessment. So this brings us to the point that I can't say this for sure, but I'd be willing to bet that in all those patients that they called isolated vertigo, that if you took a really good history and you did a really good physical exam, that it wouldn't be just isolated vertigo. So is it safe to say that isolated vertigo rarely, rarely is a posterior stroke, and those that do end up being isolated vertigo are probably because we didn't do a close enough assessment?
1: I would totally agree with that, Anton. And if you think about how concentrated that real estate is in the brainstem and the posterior portion of the brain, the chances of you knocking out just that portion that's going to cause vertigo without knocking out any of the nearby pathways is so, so low. So not impossible, but your pretest probability in the true isolated vertigo, or dizziness is very, very low. But again, it's so important for us to be screening for some of those red flags.
0: Right. So we're going to get onto those red flags in a minute. So I just I just want to hammer home that point. When you have someone who you're convinced has true vertigo, you need to slow down and do a proper physical exam. And it is complicated. You know, we thought that the HINTS exam was kind of the, the solution to everything. Well, subsequent studies showed that the HINTS exam actually we do really poorly. We, emergency physicians... And so we really need to kind of slow down, make sure we're doing the right tests for the right people. We can talk at a later date about who to do HINTS exams on, who to do Dix-Hall-Pike maneuver, how to do it properly. It turns out that few of us actually do it properly. So I just, want, I just had to go on a rant there about just doing a really <laughs> good physical exam for a patient with vertigo. So let's talk about the red flags. Again, what, sort of, what will pique your interest that, OK, this might be a posterior stroke?
1: Great question. I think about red flags in terms of your dizziness plus symptoms or on your history. So if we break it down into history versus physical exam findings, really important things for us to be screening for. On your history, obviously vascular risk factors. We already talked about atrial fibrillation and then all your other classic ones, diabetes, hypertension, dyslipidemia, etc. We're also talking, though, about recent history of trauma neck manipulation or neck pain, making sure that we're asking about those things as well. And additionally, we're asking about increased ICP type symptoms. So severe refractory headache, nausea, vomiting, altered level of consciousness, history. On physical examination, kind of thinking about it anatomically, we're thinking about things that can help us localize to that posterior circulation. So occipital lobes, looking for those visual field cuts and making sure that we're screening for those. Sometimes patients won't report it unless we're specifically looking for it because they may not notice until they start bumping into things. We're asking about our dangerous D's and our cranial nerve kind of symptoms, diplopia, Dysarthria, dysphagia, dysphonia, especially that dysphagia one. patients often don't report either because they're not putting two and two together.
0: And my favorite dydetokinesia, <laughs> which I had to practice a few times to say that word, but that's
1: my favorite high security password yeah <laughs> <laughs> We're also thinking about your limb and your truncal ataxia, like we talked about before. Uh, So making sure that we're screening not only at the limb level, but also at the truncal level. So at the very least, even if you can't gate test a patient, trying to get them to sit up in the bed to see if they have that core truncal uh, balance. Interestingly enough, I find um, that for a lot of stroke patients, the degree of ataxia is actually out of proportion with the degree of vertigo or dizziness they're reporting. So they tend to report some mild dizziness or vertigo, but when you get them up to really test that ataxia, they're all over the place.
0: So that's a that's a key clinical pearl there. So patients who who have peripheral vertigo tend to have more intense vertigo but they can walk, whereas patients with a central cause of their vertigo tend to have less severe vertigo which might make you think, oh, their vertigo is not bad. They don't have anything serious going on. But that, that's, the, that's the pitfall there. But then when you try and get them up to walk, they can't walk. So the ataxia is worse for central causes. Vertigo is better with central causes. Vertigo is worse with peripheral causes. Not quite as bad in terms of walking.
1: Absolutely. Okay. And, and then, of course, I'll add on those crossed motor and sensory symptoms as well, which we're so attuned to screen for, uh, especially if you're starting to see that crossed motor or sensory symptom. One side of the face affected, the other side of the body. That's really helpful for us localizing into that posterior circulation. The one last thing that I really want to kind of really highlight for listeners and for our audience here. Is in that patient who has an acute onset coma with no other clear explanation, no signs of head trauma, no seizure, no cardiac abnormalities, no clear suspicion for drugs or other substances.
0: Just pause there. Yeah. What's the diagnosis?
1: Basilar artery occlusion.
0: Locked-in syndrome, right, okay.
1: Absolutely, and I have seen a couple of these on the stroke end of things. They often present like they're in a full coma. Clinical pearl here is for all of those patients. When I'm assessing for responsiveness, patients in locked-in syndrome can't open their eyelids, but they can still move their eyes with control. So you want to make sure you're going up, lifting their eyelids up, and seeing if they're actually responding to you in a purposeful way with their eye movements. That may be all that they have to show you that they're still conscious. Make sure we're not missing that. And in that patient, you really, really want to get a CT angiogram to cinch that diagnosis quickly.
0: So many great pearls there, great. And again, it's so important to remember that a quarter of posterior strokes are caused by vertebral artery dissections. So again, the minor trauma, lateral neck pain, a delay between the pain and the stroke symptoms and all that good stuff. We actually recently covered that on our red flag headache episode, if you want more detail on dissections. So let's talk about stroke scores. My understanding is that stroke screening tools like the NIHSS, it's even hard to say all of that at once, they focus heavily on anterior circulation symptoms and they often miss posterior strokes altogether. Uh, And they're so long that for ED, they're not very useful. That's why the VAN screening tool came about. Who here has heard of the VAN screening tool? VAN. I think we've covered it before on EM cases. It's a pretty good, just three-question, simple screening tool for strokes in the eMERGE. But again, it's for anterior strokes. There's the BFAST. There are some things like the uh, Israeli vertebro-basilar stroke scale that concentrates on posterior strokes. But The problem is that none of these have been widely adapted. So how good or bad are these stroke scores at identifying posterior strokes or high-risk posterior strokes?
1: Unfortunately, we don't have great validated scoring tools that perform well for posterior circulation stroke. So it really comes down to your assessment, your history, and your exam.
0: These scores aren't going to really help us. There are the obvious ED assessment components that are helpful for stroke decision-making in patients with posterior strokes, like ensuring the patient is stable enough to leave the ED to go for imaging so they don't code in the scanner, doing a decent history and physical for the Ds, for ataxia, the long track signs, like I I was mentioning before, screening for any obvious contraindications to lysis, and establishing goals of care with the patient and family. That's what we do for all strokes, right? When you have your stroke team hat on, What are some of the key things you're looking for for the ED doc to help you in in your decision making that we sometimes don't really do? I think that
1: we do a really good job. And when I've got my stroke hat on, the things that are going to help me uh, make that decision as part of the team, number one, the degree of disability. I really want to know if this patient has a severe disability that would justify us pursuing revascularization therapy and some of the risks associated with that. What that looks like in the posterior circulation, very similar to anterior circulation, we still see long track signs like motor weakness, speech changes, so these patients can have severe dysarthria. Those I would consider treatment for. I'm also going to add on to that your visual field deficits that are quite severe. They can be really disabling for patients. Would consider that. And then finally again, that patient with locked in syndrome or decreased level of consciousness absolutely would consider that as well. And then I wanted to sort of emphasize what you said about goals of care and getting an idea for what that patient's pre-morbid clinical status is, what is their functional status before they came in. On the ground, we have the best access to our collateral historians and our EMS colleagues. So that information is so useful.
0: When someone comes in with an obvious stroke, it's very easy to just kind of hit the button and say code stroke and go on to your next patient. But, Really, those two things that we often miss telling the stroke team about is the patient's baseline functional status and then the degree of deficit. Because it's really the degree of deficit, it has to be a disabling enough stroke for the stroke team to be interested. So you've assessed your patient. You're ready to send them for their CTCTA. Of course, you're going to get your CTCTA without cre- uh, checking a creatinine first. Let's start with What's sort of the newest criteria for calling a code stroke?
1: Great question. I'm going to keep this simple for both anterior and posterior circulation. You're talking severe disabling symptoms within 24 hours of last seen normal time.
0: Okay. So that's from Diffuse 3 and all those studies before that, that now it's been extended out to 24 hours. Everyone knows about the 24-hour extension? Okay. And we can get into wake-up strokes maybe in our next uh, episode because that becomes a bit complicated. But suffice to say that the current thinking with wake-up strokes is that you can assume that the stroke happened about an hour or two before they woke up.
1: We think that because of the way that cortisol varies diurnally and blood pressure varies diurnally, some literature suggests that a lot of wake-up strokes are actually happening within an hour or two of waking up. So they're a little bit of a different beast.
0: Okay. So getting back to that patient who's just weak and dizzy, you wouldn't call a code stroke on just a weak and dizzy, right? So you're calling code strokes on the same things that you'd call... A code stroke for for an anterior stroke, so those long track signs, you know the weakness, the neglect, all of that. But the difference is really just two things. It's the visual symptoms and locked in syndrome, right? So when we're thinking about calling a code stroke on a posterior stroke, either they'll have long track symptoms like an anterior stroke, and then it's pretty easy, but really the things that we can miss easily in terms of calling a code stroke in a timely manner are the visual symptoms so the eyes are the you know the entryway to the soul. Make sure you do a really good eye exam. Make sure you check those visual fields properly, and then the locked-in syndrome, which comes to the eyes as well, because really the to clinch the diagnosis is just taking a look at the patient's eyes. Absolutely. All right, let's move on to thrombolysis and endovascular therapy. So, IV thrombolysis in under four and a half hours from symptom onset is in the guidelines, despite not having great evidence at least according to the the deep dive we did uh, on our Journal Jam podcast on on the topic a few years back. But that's for all comers. My understanding is that only about 5% of patients in the thrombolysis trials had posterior strokes. So that's even less robust data. And I'd be really reluctant to call for IV thrombolysis in general in patients with posterior strokes since their symptoms are often vague and are often confused with peripheral vertigo and such. You know, I'd hate to be wrong and then have those patients have a bleed later. So let's assume that every ED doc has their own comfort level with recommending IV thrombolysis within four and a half hours of stroke onset. Is there a more or less likely chance of good outcomes if the stroke is a posterior stroke compared to anterior? So
1: we do have limited evidence when it comes to posterior circulation stroke. As you mentioned, it's only 5% of patients who are included in our original thrombolysis literature. What we do know from the limited evidence we do have, there's some systematic review and meta-analysis as well as retrospective data suggesting that for patients who are eligible for thrombolysis therapy uh, with posterior circulation stroke, they do similarly as anterior circulation stroke patients would do under the similar circumstances, there may be a slightly lower chance actually of symptomatic intracranial hemorrhage with treatment. We think that's likely because the infarcts in that area are smaller in volume. So size of infarct generally correlates with risk of hemorrhage and also potentially related to some differences in collateral blood
0: supply. So that's a really interesting point there. I mean, I just assumed that because it's such a tight, small space there that you'd be at higher risk for a bad bleed, which would be you know, horrible, horrible outcome. So that that's a really important point that because they tend to be smaller strokes and have more alternate blood supply, they're actually less likely to bleed from a lytic than anterior strokes. That was exactly the opposite of what I thought. I was always like worried about giving lytics to a posterior stroke because I thought they'd be at such high risk for bleeding. So I just learned something huge there. Okay. Go on.
1: I will also highlight that imaging is absolutely key here. So we really wanna get our imaging to help us decide if a patient is treatment eligible. Right now, imaging is really the only way we can differentiate a hemorrhagic from an ischemic stroke. So you want to make sure they're not having a hemorrhage as part of their presentation. And you also wanna make sure they don't have an established infarct already. So if they have an established infarct, A, we're not sure if there's really tissue that we're gonna be salvaging if it's already irreversibly damaged, and B, it increases the risk of hemorrhage if they've got an established infarct. So at a very minimum, a non-contrast CT is going to be absolutely key for making that decision. Although non-contrast CT we know is not that sensitive for posterior circulation imaging uh, in the posterior fossa. There's just a lot of artifact from that dense, dense base of the skull. And so at our center, we pair that with a CT angiography. The thought being that if we can only see you know, ischemic changes in 20 to 40% of patients on non-contrast CT, with a CT angiography, we can look directly at those arteries and see occlusions, narrowings and dissections that we're looking for. In some cases, it can be really helpful for us to get advanced neuroimaging like CT perfusion or MRI, especially in those patients who present outside of traditional time windows, but that's usually gonna be guided by your stroke experts.
0: All right, I'm going to give you a challenge here, Dr. Lin. Can you summarize the literature on endovascular therapy for posterior strokes in one minute?
1: All right, challenge accepted. The only literature we have dedicated to posterior circulation strokes and EVT right now are the two trials, BEST and Basics, randomized control trials. Unfortunately, both of them ended up being underpowered for their outcome of interest, largely because of recruitment challenges and lots of crossover from the medical to the EVT arm. There's a third trial called Bouchi that's undergoing uh, recruitment right now. So hopefully once it gets published, we have enough numbers, we can look at a pooled analysis to power that uh, outcome that we're interested in. When it comes to extended time window, you're absolutely right. Dawn and Diffuse 3 only look at anterior circulation strokes. We have no specific data that's focused on posterior circulation strokes. So everything that we're talking about for posterior circulation strokes is really extrapolated from that anterior circulation data in that extended time window. Uh, Those patients absolutely are chosen with CT perfusion and MRI technology to help us really better assess which patients are going to benefit from therapy.
0: So just to review there, when it comes to figuring out clinically if a patient is having an acute posterior stroke, think of Dr. Lin's dizziness plus, which I think Dave Carr is a little bit older than you, I can safely say, and his chest pain plus for aortic dissection. Think of dizziness plus for posterior stroke. Uh, So dizziness plus visual loss, dizziness plus long track sign, dizziness plus at least one of the Ds, and these might be subtle, do a good exam. Uh, So don't skimp on the physical exam and wrongly concluding that they have isolated vertigo. For lytic and endovascular intervention decision-making, don't forget to figure out the pre-stroke function of the patient and the degree of disability. There are two key aspects in decision-making. It's really only disabling strokes with half-decent baseline function that are considered for invasive therapy. If you believe in the lysis for stroke data, it's surprising that the benefit of lysis is probably bigger with posterior stroke than it is for anterior stroke. And hemorrhagic complications are actually lower in posterior stroke with lytics. Uh, Indications for calling a code stroke in a patient with posterior symptoms is pretty much the same as anterior stroke. But including the wake-up strokes and up to 24 hours, although we don't have great data on it. The exception, again, is the locked-in syndrome and visual loss. So if you're thinking posterior, just do a cognitive forcing strategy, locked-in syndrome, visual loss. Patients with locked-in syndrome can benefit from endovascular therapy. So once you've ruled out other causes of really low GCS, look at those patients' eyes, get the patient a CTCTA and activate that code stroke. Dr. Lin. I'm very much looking forward to a bigger EM cases episode on posterior stroke and TIA because this is a huge topic. And I'm hoping we can get together maybe with Walter Himmel, who loves this topic too, and consider this podcast just a teaser. So stay tuned, everyone. And thank you so much for your insights. Thanks for having me. Next up is Mike Betzner and Eddie Lang discussing how to improve ED flow, a major problem in pretty much all of our EDs by having a dedicated EM doc each shift who's designated as the Emergency Physician Lead. Listen up. So Dr. Lang, you've been instrumental in in developing the EP Lead program here in Calgary. First, what is an Emergency Physician Lead, and how did the EP role kind of come about in the first place? Like, just a general sense.
2: Sure, Anton. Well, first and foremost, it it really took a village to uh, put this intervention forward, and um, I'm really thankful to have had the support of a great leadership team. And you know it's really an example of how, over the history of emergency medicine crowding, it often takes a crisis to move things forward and to open the door for innovation. So a few years ago, before the pandemic, we were raising concerns about some really bad outcomes happening in our what we call EMS park or EMS holding, which is where our ambulances are are ramping and holding on to patients. Uh, That was, of course, leading to red alerts where there were no ambulances available for the community, a a scary place to be living in a city where you don't have an ambulance response time. And we had uh, city leadership in healthcare at that time that really believed and understood that this was a system problem. It was not an emergency problem. And multiple proposals were put on a table, on various tables, with all of the leadership of the city's healthcare system in attendance, and it was the emergency physician leader idea that was one of the ones that bubbled to the top and got supported and funded. Uh, we're going to go into it in more depth, but in its core, it's about thinking that the, um, there could be a unique emergency physician whose role is in a coordinating or leadership role in the department. They're not just siloed and seeing their particular patients receiving sign over, handing sign over, But they have a big-picture view and role. And in many ways, they're in a dyad role with the charge nurse, troubleshooting bottlenecks, looking for ways to gain efficiencies, and uh, just thinking of the department at a managerial and system level and hopefully affecting throughput that
0: way. That's a a great big-picture idea of what it's all about. Dr. Betzner, I understand you've actually done this role as an emergency physician lead, what exactly does the EP leader do on the floor? Yeah.
3: It became the main touch point for nursing with charge and triage, having a single dedicated person they could bounce things off of, ask questions of, that kind of thing. So that was the basic starting point. But then on any given day, you would roll in and get a sense for where you could help the most. And that was different every day. Sometimes it was, you know, my colleagues would be struggling with Two services fighting about who was going to not admit somebody. They'd spent an hour or two or longer trying to adjudicate that, and we'd roll in and and just take over that process completely, uh, freeing them up to actually see patients instead of being on the phone continuously. There was a, a lot of information gathering. Private patients show up in eMERGE all the time, right? They just show up, and somebody has said, go to eMERGE, you'll get admitted. And no one knows where the hell they came from or who sent them or what the problem was, and we'd get a lot of information from XYZ consultant or family physician or whoever had sent that patient just to have a package ready for the doc that did see them to say, this is what the expectation is. Here's what we're you know trying to accomplish for this patient today. Lots of prolonged ED stay conversations happened with various services that just the, in general, the patients were in eMERGE and not moving out of eMERGE because surgeons are in the OR and various other things. And so we'd be touching Um, with those services to try and get that rolling. So that would help, I think, flow quite a bit. There was a lot of work with EMS patients and seven paramedics in the hallway would be a great day. If you go to our hallway right now, a lot of times there's 15 or 20 paramedics in the hallway. And it's unbelievable that we have an EMS system at all whenever it emerges like that. There's no ambulances very frequently in Calgary for prolonged periods. And I'm sure that applies in Toronto and every other city in, in North America. But getting treatment orders and DI rolling and consultations rolling really helped. It also, I think, makes a difference to have really directed orders versus just protocolized orders. So the right tests are being done, not just a bunch of tests being done. We also changed triage of many patients in this role, you know, and I have lots of examples. For instance, upper GI bleed in a variceal patient. You know, they, The nurse didn't know they had variceal bleed in the past. Their triage is number 20 to be seen. That should never be 20 to be seen. A young woman I remember that had a significant Tylenol overdose, it was already right at the eight hour mark, and she was gonna wait three, four, five, six hours and be outside the window of therapy for NAC. I recall seeing a, a fellow who came in with, I was listening to him as he's given this report to the triage nurse who wants to be referred today to have both his knees replaced. Well, I go and talk to that guy and he goes home in three minutes, not in six hours, right? Where he's even madder than he was with me. So that makes a huge difference to just satisfaction for the doctor they go, oh my God, I got go talk to this guy. He's been here for six hours and I can tell him I can do nothing for you. So those little things all add up to satisfaction for everyone, including the triage nurse, of course. And the ability to get things actually ready for merge docs to to take care of patients is a big one I found. So patients that need laceration repairs, need to have a dislocation put in place, need to have a fracture reduction, like to actually get all the people there and the equipment ready and the tray ready and the wound cleaned and a patient that actually is in a gown, that's like a miracle. You know, it just doesn't happen anymore because everyone is so busy. So there's just a ton of roles that can be done and it goes on and on and on. Ab Ab lab review, ECG review, taking phone calls from EMS. All of these things are things that this person can do allowing docs to stay engaged and in front of patients. And we had other roles that could potentially happen if there was a disaster that was going to be the lead for the disaster and MCI sort of triage, coordinating with psych so that patients didn't wait five, six, seven hours to get the psych consultation going, just get this parallel clearance pathway rolling. So, boy, on any given day, you were busy. I was actually more tired from these shifts than any clinical shift I ever worked. They're very, very cognitively tiring because you're so there's so many things people can use you for. In this role, that free up our colleagues to be able to do their jobs.
0: That's actually a great segue. When you said they're cognitively tiring, is one of the jobs I understand of the emergency physician leader is to try and reduce the cognitive interruptions that all of us have in the emergency department. So we all know, and I think based on the literature, we're interrupted approximately every two minutes. I mean, if you have a ten-hour shift, every just imagine how many times you're interrupted during your shift, and. We all know intuitively that no matter how good we think we are at handling the interruptions, they can slow us down and even contribute to medical errors. So, Dr. Betzner, how does the EP lead help to minimize those interruptions for the
3: docs in the department? So, we're taking the MS patches. We're talking to consultants that have questions on incoming patients or patients that are there. We're uh, on the phone to family physicians calling in. Uh, you know, we're talking to the RNs in general that have questions around the department with process and flow and not sure they can't find the doc and need somebody to review something and a private patient that's there or an inpatient that's there. They grab us, not just some random doc that is trying to see another patient at the same time.
0: Yeah, even, I imagine even just things like ECG reading in our yeah, department. Absolutely one of the triage nurses needs to find an emergency physician to sign the ECG. So they go around the department looking for an emergency physician to, you know, and sometimes you have to wait and they don't want to interrupt them. And then finally they get the ECGs. And you can imagine how many ECGs we have going through 100,000 yeah, patients I, I, a
3: year. Absolutely. And, and it's not just that. I mean, we, we have a, a system where a merge doc is attached to every incoming patient, private or not. There's an urge doc attached to that rightly or wrongly. And uh, all of those require interruptions and they tend to be front loaded in our shifts so that you actually see those patients at some point in their shift to help out in their care. And sometimes as you're trying to get going, I don't know about you, but like I I go hard at the beginning of my shifts and then kind of coast near the end of the shift as you try to wrap things up. And you can't get going. You can't get going because you're on the phone continuously. And so that really leads to a, a, an issue in a much broader scale in the whole department because you, the docs aren't seeing the patients at all. They're just on the phone the whole time. And we got to fix that. And then this is one way to do that, I think.
0: Amazing. So Dr. Lang, before we get into the details of the, of the research on the EP leads, what are some of the interventions at triage that have been shown to decrease ED length of stay and left without being seen rates? which are two just common metrics that we use to know how well we're doing in terms of flow and also patient outcomes. So decreased length of stay, left without being seen rates. What kind of interventions at triage? What are we talking about?
2: I think what you're referring to is a body of evidence referring to a position called the TLP or the triage liaison physician. And that is a piece of work that's come out of uh, Brian Rowe shop just uh, up the road here in our suburb called Edmonton. And, ooh, <laughs> sorry. and um, you know, the, the the they've done actually the most rigorous evaluation of that role, which is quite similar to the EPL role, but may have a higher triage component. And a number of other sites have looked at this. Uh, Vancouver has a position or studied a position called the EPIC, Emergency Physician in Charge. The UK has done the same thing. And there's now been systematic reviews on this. The evidence is a little bit mixed. One thing that you can definitely do is time for to be seen by a patient dramatically falls. But then that's not totally surprising if there's a ninja like Mike running around ordering uh, appropriate CTs on people hours before they uh, actually get seen by their most responsible physician, just like that excellent case you had there to illustrate it. The rest of the data is a bit variable. Um, we see at sometimes, in some in, in some studies the length of stay, in, stay does go down, but it's actually quite variable. So time to be seen definitely shortens. All of those other metrics metrics like return visits and uh, other things are, are less so. I mean, I can speak specifically to the EPL impact here in uh, Calgary. The data showed clearly that at least in one of the two hospitals where it was piloted, we reduced the EMS stay in the, e, in the EMS park. We got Crews out onto the roads 20 minutes faster per crew than before we had the EPL. May not seem like a lot, but if you actually add that up and you consider the costs of having an EMS crew waiting, twiddling their thumbs, as demoralizing as that is, getting them out on the road 20 minutes earlier actually adds up to a lot of cost savings and would have actually paid for the cost of the EPL role. You know, one of the things about a kind of a complex, multifaceted inter- intervention it's sometimes hard to peg the outcome into a simple measure. I mean, we try to be reductionist and say, well, if a length of stay went down, and by the way, it did go down in one of the two hospitals where the EPL was piloted. But, you know, you've got to look beyond simply the numbers. You know, we had surveys of the physicians and the nurses involved, overwhelmingly glowing positive. Physicians loved signing up for a patient who was essentially already worked up and had, uh, was able, we were able to make a disposition decision very quickly. The nurses loved it as well.
0: Yeah, I mean, it sounds like this EPL role is very different than a docket triage. Because I think a docket triage idea has been around for, what, 20 years or something? And there's data on that. But this is really much bigger, as you're hearing now, than just a docket triage. So you touched on this a little bit, Dr. Lang. Um, But I'd like to hear from Dr. Betzner in terms of your on-the-ground experience of how the EPL role was received by the staff, by the docs, by the nurses. What were some of the downsides? What were some of the roadblocks? For example, there's currently an ED nursing shortage across Canada. It's all fine and dandy that EP lead might order a bunch of tests and treatments quickly on patients. That's great. But if there's no nurse to complete the orders the orders just build up and don't get completed rapidly anyways. That's a a very common problem that's happened with placing docs at triage and just ordering things quickly, is that they just pile up and you're just running into the same problem. There's still going to be delays in actually getting the patient to get the test and getting them treated. That particular issue, I don't expect you to have all the answers, but how did the EPL role attack that issue? And what were some of the other sort of downsides and roadblocks? And how did did the staff receive it in general? Yeah,
3: so I'll try to break that down. So I personally did not get any negative feedback from anybody about this. And part of that is, again, a touch point for nurses. I I actually did spend a lot of time at triage. I, I talked to the triage nurse a lot. We'd run the list over and over and over again. You know, who are you worried about, who not? Let me, I'd go and see everyone on the list very quickly and kind of have a look at things and then come back to, to him or her with, eh, I think we need to move this one, et cetera. And we moved lots of patients up the list that otherwise probably wouldn't have changed their priority. The triage nurses and the nurses in general loved it. I think most of my colleagues loved it uh, because one of the other things that we were doing, we were, we we're a source of a second opinion. We'd walk around and say, hey, can you look at this? And he actually had dedicated time to do that. Or you're the doc in the recess bay while one or two or three docs are trying to really work on someone super, super sick. And we're coordinating all the stuff that they don't need to be doing. Entering the orders. Talking to consultants. I know what they want. I don't need them to tell me that. I can hear what's going on, getting people down to see these folks that are super sick while they're putting a chest tube or intubating or whatever. So all of that leads to, you know, much more seamless ability for docs to stay at the patient. And then on the issue of nurses not, you know, not being available to do orders, that's always going to be the case. They're overwhelmed. But, you know, when you go to a nurse today and you have a face-to-face to go, I'm worried about this person. They need this now. It gets done now. It does. And and that stuff was done, you know, very seamlessly. And some of the more routine stuff that could wait, well, so be it. That's no different than it is already. And maybe we didn't positively influence those patients. But the ones that mattered, for sure, this stuff got done.
2: If I could just add, you know, we know that the wait is one of the most detrimental and negatively perceived things from the patient lens and determines their overall experience. So I would often come up to patients and say, hi, I'm not going to be your main doctor, but I've come to see you. I know a little bit about what's going on you on with you. And I am going to potentially start things early while you're waiting to see your main doctor. And invariably they love it. It. just yeah. to, to get that early intervention and say, oh, thank you so much. They were a lot of appreciation at that point.
0: Yeah. Just to see a doctor within, you know, an hour of them hitting the emergency door is is really important for patient satisfaction. With it's one note. of the key key things they look at i want
3: to make a comment about longevity and nurses and docs in general this is really important we are losing nurses we're losing awesome nurses at an alarming rate who are just tired and worn out and COVID has really amplified that and it's amplified it for docs too the triage nurses especially they get killed every that's a horrendous job It really, truly is. And I feel terrible for them, the, the shuffle that they go through and the abuse that they take. But when you can support them and take some of that abuse head on, send some of the unreasonable people to alternate places to go and, and get looked after or not, I believe that helps longevity. They, they feel like you've got their back in a much more direct way. And they have somebody that can intervene on their behalf when they're being disrespected. Most patients still don't disrespect docs to their face. That's a fact, right? You walk into the room, a nurse could be getting tons of abuse. You walk in, it stops. Virtually always, which is nonsense. There's no need for that, but it's still a fact. And so when I would come into a bad conversation happen if you walk right over and go, you're going to stop that right now. Yeah, and that, here's what's going to happen. That makes a huge difference to their day.
0: That actually segues nicely. I mean, that, I can imagine that's going to improve the culture of your department in general. For sure. That you know, nurses and doctors and all the staff will actually be there for each other. And so the culture in your department is going to be much better. And the cultures in a lot of departments now are really going through a hard time with COVID. Yeah,
3: longevity is a problem. and It's accelerating rapidly. And we got to do everything under our power to get that back on track.
0: Yeah. and, And talking about the culture of the department, you've got to have a department where the culture is that throughput is valued, right? And that must be difficult from a leadership perspective, I imagine, trying to have a culture where patient care is important, your wellness is important, but also throughput is important. How how do you kind of develop a culture from a leadership perspective, from an administrative? I know that's a big question, but how do you develop a culture where throughput is valued?
2: It's a tough one, uh, Anton. You know, I, I would say that here in Calgary, to some degree, that's already the case. And I would take as an illustration my preference... Is for early morning shifts. I often get the nighttime sign over, and there's really a tremendous sense of pride if the uh, overnight team has managed to keep a lid on things. So I think that pride and being able to ensure throughput, making sure that uh, you know that we're not walking into a five-hour a uh, wait, is I think already a sign that we value throughput. The other thing that I think is clear, I mean, the number one cause of frustration in our group and in many groups right now is the terrible moral distress you see when you're looking at our ehr and it's just waiting room waiting room waiting room waiting room, waiting room and, and you've just got dozens of patients out there for various reasons are not able to come in so because that bugs us so much
3: and having nothing done and having nothing
2: done right just waiting just waiting and and you know it wasn't an easy decision for them to, mostly to come to the emergency room either they were sent there Or they, you know, it's usually it's generally justified, so they shouldn't they shouldn't be waiting as long. And finally, I think, you know, the thing I think that's important to highlight about the EPL is the is forging a partnership relationship with the charge nurse. Right now, the charge nurse is kind of stuck with that crappy job of calling the surgical residents, uh, bugging people, making you know, doing that business of uh, does that person really need a stretcher? Can we offload them? Sharing that task and having a dyad model of leadership for the emergency department, I think, is also a really important contributor to creating the culture that values throughput.
0: Absolutely. Dr. Betzner and Dr. Lang, I imagine that you were both all star emergency physician leaders. There's not a Lang and a Betzner in every department, and there's not a Lang and a Betzner available for every day, for every shift. And you're gonna to need to train some other people how to be emergency physician leaders. Um, emergency medicine is a pretty young specialty. Many of our emergency physicians don't have a ton of clinical experience. How do you suggest to others who are trying to do something like this to train an emergency physician lead?
3: First of all, I think it is a deficit in our current training programs. Our residents really don't get a chance to truly manage the departments anymore. Because the departments are too big. When I was training that, we truly get a chance to do that. It was was on night shifts. They, they had the nurses come to us with everything. And that's super valuable stuff. You cannot replace that. And I had somebody with 25, 30 years of experience to bounce things off of when, when you know, the sweat was pouring off at an alarming rate. All that's good for you. So you can't replace mentorship and you can't replace time. But this is the kind of role we're actually bringing our residents in to to be with somebody doing this role. That's super valuable, I think, and we're missing that right now. And we've got to bring that into the residency somehow. And there's also, I think, a role for things like you and I have collaborated on this on, you know, cases of the month and having a forum to talk about cool cases or you throw it out to everyone for comment and conversation. We've talked about that. We've done a little bit of work with our crit cases together. I did that at STARS a lot as medical director. We'd send out cases, which allowed discussion of difficult topics and difficult situations and also allow you to bring a whole group of docs to a very tight standard deviation of the way they manage things. It's very valuable and it's underutilized. When we started the
2: EPL, we had the luxury of limiting it only to physicians who had at least five years in practice. And my recollection from the shifts I did was that I was often asked, especially if it was that handover to handover to handover that wasn't going anywhere, getting involved, troubleshooting it, problem-solving it, and getting uh, an efficient disposition. That kind of sharing the approach of how you can tackle those difficult cases is, I think, a really important way of training our junior faculty to fulfill an EPL role, even if it doesn't formally exist, but it's kind of integrated into what you do as a fee-for-service doctor.
0: All right. So... You guys have beautifully described how the EPL would work at, at a big academic center that sees, what is it, eighty, 100000 a year. But let's talk about some other settings. So how would you envision, envision this role in, say, and you can imagine all kinds of settings, like in a disaster medicine setting, uh, in a rural setting, in a big community hospital like I work at, pre-hospital, and even really interesting maybe in a resource-scarce country, you know, in glo- global emergency medicine. So let's take turns here. So how would you imagine this role in, in some of those settings?
3: The demand is insatiable across medicine for accessible, knowledgeable docs who can deal with anything. That's emergent docs. That, that, that's what we do every day. <laughs> <coughs> who are experts at triage, initial triage, uh, you know, treatment, and potentially transport. All of that is what we do. And so there isn't a better group to tackle these kind of resource-poor situations, atypical situations. We already do that in the transport realm, and we do that in the MS realm. We now have an OMC, our online medical control physician, that takes a ton of calls for patients that should be taken care of by somebody else. Palliative docs that aren't answering their calls, family physicians that aren't answering their calls, nursing home uh, docs that aren't answering their call, for whatever reason. That's a whole separate issue that needs to be tackled in general the availability of docs after hours is atrocious nowadays and so emerge docs are brought into those roles and I think do a very good job of it and so you could build on that in a huge number of different ways through telemedicine through great regional call centers like rapid and other things that we already are using but I think you need dedicated people to that not a doc in the department trying to see patients that's the difference
2: Dr. Len? Yeah, I I think Mike captured that beautifully. and It reminds me of the discussions we had at the beginning when we knew the funding was coming for the EPL role. What would be the most high-impact, high-value activities for that person? Should they have most responsible physician responsibilities? Should they be taking rapid calls? Should they be going to the hospital bed huddle? So all of those things need, I think, in these settings, need to be laid out. And once the job description is clear... These are the five, six, eight things that you nearly always need to gravitate to to fulfill this leadership coordinating role. Things should fall into place.
0: So we're all intimately aware of the problems of overcrowding and access block, some of which are not within our control. But this EP lead role is a real potential solution that is within our control. In our control. It's my hope that strategies like the EP lead if implemented across the country, would add value to patients and families by improving their experiences, quality, and efficiency of care, as well as safety during ED visits and while under EMS care as well. The EP lead role could potentially add value to staff and EM providers by, as was mentioned, all those little things that help us out, and that can actually reduce to less burnout and improve well-being by, again, reducing all those frustrating delays and inefficiencies and by allowing you to instead focus on providing key patient care responsibilities. So the ED lead role might even improve outcomes by reducing the wait time uh, before initial patient contact with the physician during the ED visit, and we might even inspire other specialties to improve the flow in their departments throughout the hospital, which would then improve access block. I'd love to see more data on EP lead roles, decreasing medical errors, decreasing delays to access to treatments, decreasing bounce backs, decreasing costs, increasing quality of care, improving patient and provider satisfaction. So hopefully that's coming down the pipe soon. Thanks so much, Dr. Lang, Dr. Betzner. You've probably inspired EM leaders across the country to come up with innovative solutions of their own to the big problem of overcrowding. Thanks, Dr. Helm. Thank you. Now for our advertising segment brought to you by Metricade, the amazing scheduling system. Metricade can actually predict what the average physician-to-time assessment will be any given day by looking at the physician lineup. You know, some of my colleagues see two patients an hour, some see three or four or five patients an hour. If your group wants, Metricade will build the schedule based on this information as well as what shifts everyone prefers to work, creating a lineup that can handle the inflow of patients hour by hour. Best of all, the schedule still feels like self-scheduling rather than a performance algorithm. Time for Dr. Andrew McRae, EM researcher and world expert on cardiac troponins on when not to order a troponin. A 37-year-old male comes to ED with a chest. The chief complaint, I have a chest with some kind of weird vague symptom in it somewhere. Clinical question, do you order a troponin? So joking aside, there are many problems with indiscriminately ordering troponins on everyone who enters the ED with any symptom between their neck and their belly. And it seems to me that the threshold for ordering a troponin is getting lower and lower and lower with every passing year, to the point where it's really become a problem for our patients and our systems. Today, with our national expert and researcher on troponins, Dr. Andrew McRae, you may have heard before, along with Eddie Lang, on our episode 128, I believe it was, on low-risk chest pain, and high-sensitivity troponin, we're going to discuss why indiscriminate troponin testing is a problem and how we can safely decide on which patients do not need a troponin in the emergency department. All right, so first question. Let's talk about why ordering troponins on everyone who comes in is a problem. So I imagine there's, there's false positives, there's more downstream testing, more patient anxiety, prolonged ED length of stay, more referrals, more costs. These are all problems. So Dr. McCray, could you first just elaborate on on some of these problems and what, what you see as the problem with indiscriminately ordering troponins?
4: So it's drilled into us as eMERGE physicians that any symptom between the neck and the navel could be attributable to coronary disease. And there's good reasons for that. Some patients present with non-textbook symptoms, and I'm thinking specifically about older patients, multimorbid or diabetic patients, and female patients. So we should be thinking about an ACS in patients with a broad swath of presenting symptoms. But it isn't necessarily the case that considering an acute coronary syndrome necessarily means ordering a troponin for every patient. It is possible to consider and evaluate the pretest probability of an ACS and to make thoughtful decisions about which patients need troponin testing. I'm a huge fan of high-sensitivity troponins, but we need to recognize that their high sensitivity for detecting myocardial injury comes at a cost of poor specificity. So, troponin testing should be used purposefully in patients with a reasonably high pretest probability. If we overuse troponins in low-risk patients or indiscriminately order them in patients with clear alternative diagnoses, we're going to unnecessarily prolong patient's emergency department stays, and we will commit a small but important number of patients to further testing with adverse consequences like CT scans with radiation risk and formal angiograms that have non-zero risks of complications, including kidney injury and vascular injuries. Now, listeners might be concerned about medical legal risk, and it is true that people tend to get sued for misses and not for overtesting. So I get the feeling that sensitivity is more important than specificity, but we need to be realistic with our patients about how minimal the gains are in troponin testing for those with a really low clinical pretest probability. And we need to tell patients about the potential downsides of pursuing those marginal gains at all costs.
0: It sounds to me like it's you know you've got all these problems, false positives, like you were saying. People are going to be getting angiograms, high-cost stuff. Uh, with potential complications. I guess it's really all about accurately assessing pretest probability, right? So, so we want to know who's so low risk that they wouldn't benefit from testing. So, how do you actually assess pretest probability for ACS accurately? We've all heard of the heart score, there's the EDAC score, there's a whole bunch of other scores. The problem with those scores in terms of deciding whether or not to do a troponin is that they all include a troponin, right? So, enter the HERE score which the funny part, I mean, I'm not so quick on the uptake. And I was like, "Here score? What is here? I kept on saying "here" in my head because I'm kind of an audio person. Of course, it's HEART without the T. So HEART without the T, the HEAR score. So Dr. McLeod, I understand you wrote an article in CGEM about this here score. Can you tell us a bit about that article and, and, in general, how you'd assess the pretest probability for ACS without a troponin?
4: So the way that most of us probably evaluate pretest probability is that we use our gut. We know the timing and character of symptoms that are most commonly experienced in patients with acute coronary syndromes, and we know the age and comorbidities that increase people's risk of having coronary disease. A nice study from the group in Manchester in the UK quantified the accuracy of clinical gestalt for ruling in and ruling out MI. The bottom line is that gestalt is good, but not quite good enough. The sensitivity of a low-risk clinical gestalt combined with a non-ischemic ECG, was about 95% sensitive for ruling out myocardial infarction. A more accurate way of estimating pretest probability is to use a validated risk score. The here score is a variation on the well-known HEART score without the troponin component. Patients get scores between 0 to 2 for each of their symptom characteristics, ECG findings, age, and combinations of risk factors. It was first evaluated by a group in northwestern France and then subsequently in multiple settings in the US, Canada and Japan. And across most studies, the sensitivity of a HEAR score of less than two for ruling out major adverse cardiac events within 30 days, including on the initial emergency department encounter, was about 98.5%. We validated the HEAR score here in Calgary as well and published our findings in the Canadian Journal of Emergency Medicine. We used data from a troponin study completed by my colleague James Andruco. And the analysis was done by Connor O'Reilly, my former master's student who's now a medical student here. And our findings were consistent with the other recent validations that a HEAR score less than two classified about 20% of patients as low risk and not needing troponin testing, with a 98.5% sensitivity for ruling out adverse cardiac events at the index visit and within 30 days. So by using this structured risk score, we can identify a population of patients with an extraordinarily low pretest probability in whom we can probably safely omit troponin testing.
0: Let me just review that. So Gestalt is 95% unless you're Betzner, and then it's, what, 99.8? Uh, the HEAR score takes that up to 985 half, 99%. So that's pretty impressive. And you know, for those of you who think that your gestalt is better than the score, it's probably not, unless you're Mike. So less than 2% probability is pretty reassuring. Like if we say, okay, with the HEAR score, it's certainly less than 2%. But some of us want even a higher sensitivity, depending on our risk tolerance, Right. Now, when I started practicing about 20 years ago, it was pretty much standard. Eddie, correct me if I'm wrong. Mike, correct me if I'm wrong. It was pretty much standard that below a 2% probability of a life-threatening problem, you were okay with that because you knew, and the studies actually backed this up, that the harms from all the patients with false positives would outweigh the benefit of saving that one in 100 people. But nowadays... That risk tolerance is getting lower and lower and lower and lower all the time, it seems. And both physicians and patients want it to be zero. And that's a problem. So why not just kind of do troponin testing on everyone so that we can get get it closer to to zero? I mean, we do again, we have those false positives. We're going to have some downstream effects. But can you kind of just elaborate on that for us?
4: So... Getting a sensitivity any higher than 98.5% is really hard to do, even with adding troponin testing. Some of the studies validating the HEAR score actually studied the incremental value of doing serial conventional troponins and found that there was no incremental improvement in sensitivity when you added troponin testing for patients who had a HEAR score less than two. When it comes to high sensitivity troponin assays, the sensitivity of the one and two hour algorithms that most sites use for working up patients with chest pain are also in the 96 to 99% neighborhood. So you're unlikely to achieve any substantial improvement in sensitivity by doing troponins on everybody with a chest complaint. You will, however, almost certainly lose specificity if you add on troponin testing for patients with already low pretest probability. For patients with clinically low risk, universal troponin testing can't help but lead to more false positive diagnoses of acute coronary syndromes, more unnecessary testing, patient complications and increased resource use. I'll take an example and throw a few numbers at you to put things in perspective. If you take a hypothetical population of a thousand North American patients with chest pain, about 15% of them or 150 will have an acute coronary syndrome as the cause of their symptoms. And 85% or 850 of them won't. For every 5% decrease in specificity, that would literally translate into 50 more false positives in that group of 1,000 patients. So our four hospitals in Calgary see about 15,000 patients every year with chest pain. And in our world, a 5% loss in specificity would translate into 750 additional patients who would be committed to unnecessary investigations or admissions every year with huge operational impacts and potential complications. And that's just not sustainable, nor is it good for patients, especially if you're not going to improve sensitivity for detecting symptomatic coronary disease.
0: Well, so I just want to highlight that key, key fact that there is no incremental value of adding a troponin on a patient who has a HEAR score of less than 2. That is profound. I can really, I mean, just imagine how many troponins are being ordered. So we have some pretty good evidence here that we don't need to order troponins on certain people. Now comes the big problem, is talking to the patient. So they're coming in, they're worried they have a heart attack, their sister just had a heart attack, they want to make sure they don't have a heart attack. Let's talk about shared decision making. So what's the conversation that you have with the patient who presents with a HEAR score of 1 or 0, and you decide that the pre-test probability is really, really low, you don't want to order troponin? We know that patients generally can't understand statistics, right? There's actually been multiple studies that look at this. The general population has about a grade 4 math ability. So talking numbers with them is not going to help. So what, what do you actually tell the patients who, who are worried about a heart attack? What, what's your sort of shared decision-making script, so to speak?
4: I try to explain in understandable terms how confident I am in ruling out a serious cause for their symptoms and why. And explaining the why is probably the most important thing. It's really important for helping patients understand what their symptoms and experience represents, for addressing their fears and anxieties, and to help them engage in shared decision-making. So for that hypothetical patient, I'd say, I'm glad you came today. Based on the symptoms you've described and the electrocardiogram we took, I'm 98 to 99% sure that there's not a serious heart-related cause for your symptoms. The location and nature of your pain are less common in patients with heart problems, and your overall risk of heart disease is low because of your age and how healthy you are. We know that heart-related pain most often lasts minutes to hours, which is substantially different than what you've been experiencing. Doing blood tests is unlikely to uncover anything serious, and if anything, Doing more tests can lead to what we call a false positive test that would potentially commit you to more invasive testing that you probably don't need. If you really want me to do some additional blood tests, I will, but my recommendation is that they aren't likely to be helpful and it's okay for you to go home today and talk to your family doctor at some point about your overall risk of heart disease. It sounds like it takes a long time, but most patients at the end of the conversation say, that's okay with me. I really don't want any more tests, and I document the conversation. I give them really good instructions on if and when they should come back to the emergency department, and they go home. The conversation takes way less time than serial troponin testing and other investigations.
0: Excellent. I mean, I'm just going to have a different sort of script for this. Something that I use very often, uh, and people can really relate to this. You know, I, I might say something like, "If you were my brother, or my sister, or my daughter." or my son, or my father, or my mother. If you were were my loved one, I would not want you to get a troponin right now because I know that it's not going to do any good and it might do harm. And that that seems to be one that that a lot of patients do respond to. All right, so thank you so much, Dr. McRae, for your insights. This has been some great food for thought on a topic that we encounter pretty much every ED shift. It's my hope that the next time our listeners are faced with a low-risk chest pain patient, and they have some single weird vague symptom somewhere in their chest and zero risk factors, that at least consider not ordering a troponin rather than just reflexively ticking that little box in the EMR. In many of these cases, it's probably the right thing to do and may save the patient downstream heartache and uh, take a little bit of stress off of our, our already very stressed healthcare system. So thank you very much.
4: Thanks for having me.
0: Now for EM doc, Dr. Marshall Ross, who we need to declare up front, also works in a private clinic that uses ketamine for patients with mental health problems and substance use disorder. In this live podcast from the Hodgson Lecture Day, he's going to talk about a fairly novel idea, giving ketamine in the ED for patients suffering from suicidal ideation. There's another pandemic going on besides the COVID one and the opioid one. And that pandemic is suicide. Every year, there's about 50,000 completed suicides and 1.5 million attempts at suicides in the U.S. alone. Our EM colleagues to the south of us see about half a million patients a year with either the chief complaint of suicidal ideation or suicidal behaviors in their EDs. It's a lot of people. There's little we can do in the ED besides certify these unfortunate individuals and wait often hours, sometimes even days, before they get transferred to the psychiatry floor, right? As far as I know, there are no known effective medications to date to treat acute suicidality. And I just want you to think about that for a moment. Like, let's ponder for a second the list of medications we can use to treat acute physical pain. So there's morphine, there's hydromorphone, there's Celebrex, there's Toradol, there's acetaminophen, there's codeine. The list goes on and on and on and on. And we'd all agree that one of the cornerstones of our job in the ED as emergency docs is to treat acute pain. We appropriately get asked by our wonderful nurse colleagues to order pain medications for our patients even long before they're seen, right? And and we do that all the time. I'd argue that acute suicidality is comparable to acute physical pain in terms of morbidity and maybe even mortality, too. I mean, just imagine that intense feeling of hopelessness and helplessness, enough to want to actually end your life right now, and how excruciating that can be. So why don't we have any medications for acute suicidality? I mean, sure, there's the SSRIs, there's the antipsychotics, but they can take weeks to work. Here's a crazy idea. What about the ED administration of ketamine for acute suicidality? Now, it it sounds almost comical because we seem to want to use ketamine for just about everything in the emergency department, but there just might be a potential for ketamine to treat acute suicidality in the ED. So with me today, I've got Dr. Marshall Ross, who's not only an ED doc in Calgary, but works in a clinic where they treat people with mental health addiction and pain issues. He has a special interest in using ketamine to treat depression and suicidality in the ED. Welcome Dr. Ross.
5: Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: So, why ketamine for acute suicidal ideation? You know, when we start with a medication for any indication, we want to know is there a biological plausible reason why we why would use this medication? So, what what is kind of the neurochemical basis? What's the physiologic explanation? What's sort of the mechanism of action of ketamine?
5: Yeah, that's a great question. You know, ketamine is an NMDA receptor antagonist, right? That's what we write in our board exams. That's what we pimp medical students on, and that's what they say. And then we sort of leave it at that. We think, okay, I guess that explains why it does all kinds of crazy stuff. Um, But, you know, it's not really the whole picture. We pretend like we understand how depression works. We say, oh, it's not enough serotonin, the monoamine hypothesis. That doesn't really explain depression either. You know, the truth is, We don't know how ketamine works to treat depression. There's a whole bunch of theories. You know, there's probably five mechanisms of action that have been proposed. Probably the mechanism is one that hasn't been proposed. But there's a few interesting things that come from early trials, animal models. There's this concept of neuroplasticity. So there's this idea that a lot of mental health is caused by chronic stress. Trauma, you get abused as a kid, you're more likely to be depressed later. You're more likely to have addiction issues. If we can treat those traumas, we should be able to treat the underlying mental health problems. So ketamine has this this cool feature that it creates something called neuroplasticity. And what I mean by that is after you've had ketamine, after it's, you know, even left your system, you release something called BDNF, brain-derived neurotropic factor, and your brain starts growing and changing. Synapses start getting formed. There's all these fascinating models in mice where they take mice and they stress them out chronically, which is kind of sad. So you stress these mice out and then you autopsy them. You look at their brains and their brains change certain parts of their brain, particularly the medial prefrontal cortex, it shrinks. You know, it actually shrinks in size and connections are broken down. Synapses are lost. And then if you take those same mice, not the ones we autopsied, but, you know, same thing, and you give them ketamine, what happens is the brains change back. Brains grow back. Synapses are reformed where they're broken down. So ketamine appears to have this uh, amazing ability to reverse the biologic effects of chronic stress. This is this idea of neuroplasticity. And again, this is probably not the whole picture, but one thing that's quite interesting is we know forgive someone who's depressed ketamine. They feel better in about two hours and it lasts about seven days. And that's the exact same time frame that we see those changes in the brains of mice. So I'm not saying that we know that's how it works, but there's pretty cool science there and pretty interesting biologic plausibility that ketamine may have a pretty cool role in treating mental health.
0: Interesting. There's somewhat of a biological basis for ketamine for depression. Somewhere between sort of tenuous and maybe possibly convincing. Okay, let's start with that. So let's get on to sort of the clinical trials with ketamine. And we'll start with just depression before we get on to suicidality. So what does the literature show uh, when it comes to ketamine for depression? So I'm assuming that this is going to be outpatient patients or inpatient patients in the psychiatry floor, nowhere near the eMERGE. So let's just start with that just to get a background before we get onto the suicidality part.
5: Yeah, for sure. So depression is where ketamine is the best proven. And, you know, I didn't really believe it at first because I love ketamine. I love it for intubating people. I love it for agitation, for all kinds of stuff. And to think that it also works for depression seemed uh, a bit ridiculous. But when I dove into it, it's, it's actually quite impressive. So this whole field of ketamine and mental health started... From a bunch of soldiers who came back from war and had surgery. Uh, they had ketamine as part of their general anesthetic. And people were waking up after surgery feeling less depressed with less chronic pain, which is pretty surprising. You know, you'd think the opposite. You have surgery, you're stuck in bed, you're, you should have more pain, you should be more depressed. And yet people were feeling better. So this led to a whole bunch of studies. And the last 20 years has seen this huge surge of ketamine studies. So just to give you a, a flavor for how much literature there's been, there's a systematic review, came out last year, 2021. They found 36 studies with 2,900 people looking at ketamine for depression. And they conclude consistently that ketamine is highly effective, particularly in treatment-resistant depression. That's people who are hard to treat. They're not responding to other treatments. We know there's early trials, phase one, two, three, and then when there's enough evidence, uh, there's guidelines. Right now, there are three guidelines, an American guideline, a UK guideline, and a Canadian guideline that all recommend ketamine for treatment-resistant depression. You know, the Canadian guideline came out in November 2021. It has a level one uh, recommendation to treat treatment-resistant depression with ketamine. So that's that's pretty good. That's pretty solid evidence uh, in ketamine for treatment-resistant depression.
0: All right. Some of us might disagree there. I mean, we all know that there's the guidelines, and then if you really dig deep into the evidence, you find out that the guidelines actually aren't exactly right. Let's suspend our disbelief for a moment and assume that the guidelines are right. So that's a bit of the literature on ketamine and treatment-resistant depression. Now let's talk about the literature in suicide. Now I understand that the, most of the literature on ketamine for suicidal ideation comes from uh, inpatient psychiatry, uh, from the psychiatry literature, with a proviso in mind that these are not ED studies. What, what does that literature tell us on, su- on ketamine and suicide?
5: The literature here is not bad, but it's certainly not as strong as the literature in treatment-resistant depression. So again, looking at a systematic review that came out last year, we have 15 studies here and about 800 patients. So not bad, but not as strong. Uh, if we look a little bit deeper at that literature, a lot of it is S-ketamine, which is the enantiomer, which is basically a more expensive version of ketamine. So if we, we really isolate down to where are the prospective randomized trials on ketamine for suicidal ideation, if we look at those, there's only five prospective trials, uh, some in inpatient, some in outpatient psychiatry. Um, three of those were, had positive primary outcomes. Two of them did not. The three with positive outcomes had multiple positive secondary outcomes as well, and the other two trials had a bunch of positive secondary outcomes. So there there appears to be a trend favoring ketamine for suicidal ideation, but it's not—you know—it's certainly not in guidelines. It's certainly not hundred percent proven. You know, there's there's a, a fair bit of doubt that remains as to the exact efficacy of it.
0: All right. So there's a few small studies that suggest it might work for suicidality. So let's then get on to the emergency literature. I understand there's uh, just a couple of studies on the emergency literature. Uh, What does the emergency department literature show about ketamine and suicidality?
5: Yeah, so here we're stepping down again to a lower level of evidence. There's only three prospective trials. There's only 84 patients that have ever been studied. So not that much. We're looking at wide confidence intervals. But what we do see is that in all three of these studies, patients who are given ketamine improved rapidly from their baseline. So within 90 minutes, in every single study, people get better. From their baseline, uh, their suicidal ideation is largely resolved, which is pretty impressive. There are some issues, you know, small studies, wide confidence intervals. What they found is that, you know, in in the trials that had comparator groups that got placebo, over time, those who got placebo kind of catch up. You know, as you're sitting in the eMERGE, over time, your acute suicidal ideation kind of calms down just with the tincture of time. So at 90 minutes, we're having statistically significant improvements with ketamine, whereas at four hours, well, we start to lose that. But it's not the ketamine stopped working. It's that other people caught up. So, you know, in summary, I'd say early days. We don't really know exactly how and when and the details of how it works, but there's some pretty interesting early literature that's at least hypothesis-generating and makes, you know, we should be thinking about the possibilities of how this could work if we were to get better evidence.
0: Yeah, I think that's a good way of putting it, hypothesis-generating at this point. You know, any journal club that we did on this would... Uh, <laughs> Would of course say we need bigger studies and more studies and more RCTs. The way every journal club ends, but uh, especially for this. So, what about the the short half life of ketamine? So you had mentioned something about that it wears off. So we all know that the the uh, half life of ketamine is about two to four hours. And I understand one of those studies showed that at ninety minutes it was really quite effective for suicidality, and then by two hundred and thirty minutes it had worn off. So. That doesn't help us too much. I mean, I guess it relieves the patient's pain of suicide for a few hours, but that still remains, to me, it sounds like, you know, in three, four hours, you go, go to reassess them and they're still going to need to be admitted. They're still going to be boarded in your emergency department for a while. Uh, you haven't really gotten any further. So we certainly don't want to be sending home someone at 230 minutes and then, you know, they're still suicidal and then have a bad outcome. So how do we make sense of that?
5: It's kind of nuanced and complicated. I guess the point is that people who get ketamine improve faster and they actually stay better. Their suicidal ideation stays away. The reason that you lose your significant difference is because the comparator group gets better as well, just with time, without anything. But what we do know is that the effects appear to last about seven days. And we know that if you have ketamine and you respond, this is from the psychiatry literature, at seven days, 90% of people still have no suicidal ideation. And then if we look at the group who responded to time only, you know they got better, but they got better just without ketamine. And we look at them in a week; only about forty percent of them remain in remission. So suicidal ideation, you know, it comes and goes and comes and goes with time. But if you give people ketamine, it seems to stay away, which means that maybe ketamine could be used as a bridge. Maybe instead of admitting someone for you know alleviation of their acute suicidal ideation, maybe. We could give them ketamine to alleviate that symptom, safely discharge them, and arrange follow-up for them, maybe.
0: Yeah, let, let's dig into that a little bit further. So at this point, I don't think anyone's going to be sending home a suicidal patient no. after you give them ketamine. Please don't. Yeah. <laughs> but maybe one day in the future, you know, if bigger studies do pan out and maybe we have good supports for the patients as, as outpatients, um, I, you can imagine a day where, the, where that might work. Because you know, imagine if we could reduce those boarding times. The ED admits, um, and we can relieve their suffering pretty much within 90 minutes. Is pretty amazing. How do you actually foresee in the future the practicalities of this actually working?
5: Yeah, I mean, I think there's two. There's kind of two ways we could use ketamine for suicidal ideation. One is someone comes in and they are suffering. They feel they have so much mental anguish. They want to die. Um, we can relieve that symptom for them, and you know. We should. If someone has a broken arm, we treat their pain. Someone has mental pain, we should treat that too. So I think that's a pretty easy argument to make. The more complicated place where this might work is this idea of facilitating discharges. So let me give you a scenario of how potentially this could work if we had the right studies and the right systems in place to make it work. So let's say a 23-year-old male comes in. He has a history of borderline personality disorder, major depressive disorder, Um, And he recently broke up with his significant other. He was texting a bunch of his friends saying goodbye. One of his friends picked him up and brought him into the eMERGE. You go see him and you figure he probably has a chronic risk of suicide. But right now in the setting of this acute stressor, his acute risk is substantially higher. And you can't send him home the way that he is. Uh, It's five in the morning. So you certify him, leave the room, you hand him over. The psychiatry team sees him at like seven or eight in the morning. They agree with you. They have the residency. They have the staff C. They put admission orders at noon. Patients in your merge till 6 p.m. Gets admitted to psych where he stays for you know roughly two days on maybe a crisis stabilization unit or something like that. Um, he gets some outpatient resources with time and a little bit of psychosocial support. His acute suicidal risk returns to his chronic risk, and he goes home, and he gets follow-up in the community. That's kind of what happens at my center now. So imagine now it's 5 in the morning. You see that same patient. Now you certify him, and you use patient-centered decision-making. You consent him. You move him to a medical bed, not a monitored bed, just a medical bed, and you give him 0.5 milligrams per kilogram of ketamine. That's, that's the right dose. That's what was used in all the psychiatry studies. You give him this dose. You come back and see him at the end of your shift, 7 a.m. before handover, and now his suicidal ideation is just about gone. He says he feels like he's back to his baseline level. Um, you get the psychiatry team to see him still. You know, it's early days and you don't want to send this guy home on your own. Uh, Psychiatry team sees him. They feel that he is at his baseline risk. They know that he's had a dose of ketamine. They're comfortable with how long it lasts, how it works. They now set him up for outpatient follow-up the next day at a rapid access clinic. And he is discharged from the emergency department. Think about the benefit there. This guy now has way less suffering. He suffers a whole lot less because his mental anguish has been relieved. He no longer stays in your emergency department till 6 p.m. waiting for his bed. We have two days of an acute care bed that is no longer being used. And he ends up in the same place two days sooner. It's like a catalyst to recovery. And that's what I would love to see. We can't do it today. But I think there is huge potential to make a dramatic impact on the way that we treat this common presentation in the emergency department.
0: Well, thanks so much for your perspective on uh, ketamine and suicidal ideation, Dr. Marshall. While I'm hoping that one day in the future we'll be effectively treating suicidal ideation in the ED with ketamine, improving morbidity and maybe even mortality, you know, expediting psychiatric care instead of boarding these patients in the ED, ketamine for suicidal ideation is certainly not ready for prime time yet, but at the same time, this is a very intriguing idea, and perhaps most importantly, I think this topic has really helped us focus more on the overwhelming suffering that these patients experience under our care. And, and just think about how we can relieve that suffering and that I can confidently say that just pointing a bit more awareness that these patients are really suffering while they're in an ED and thinking about possible ways that we can help them more than we are now at least. So thank you very much. Hey, thanks for having me. Do you want to solve over 90% of your patient's problems without the help of a more senior colleague? Then check out Med Mastery, an award-winning online learning platform where you can learn powerful skills like ultrasound, EKG, or CT imaging, to name a few. An affordable subscription gives you access to a wealth of over 80 peer-reviewed and CME-accredited courses taught by world-class experts and endorsed by the British Medical Association. If you're an educator teaching residents or advanced practice providers, Definitely check out their group subscription. It's great for bringing you and your team up to speed on the most important clinical skills. They're offering a special 15% discount for EM Cases listeners waiting for you at www.medmastery.com/emcases. That's www.medmastery.com/emcases. Check out MedMastery today. Next up is Dr. Stephanie Vanderberg on peer support workers for patients with substance use disorder who present to the ED in crisis. So lots of crises these days and pandemics, pandemics and crises, opioid, suicide, COVID. The opioid crisis is not over and neither is widespread alcohol use disorder. 22% of Canadians have a substance use disorder at some point in their lives, including physicians. And that rate might be even higher in physicians, is my understanding. And the COVID pandemic is not helping. Where I work in Ontario, since the onset of the pandemic, rates of emergency medical services for suspected opioid overdose have increased by 57%. And rates of fatal opioid overdose have increased by 60%. And the numbers aren't dissimilar across North America. So where do people with substance use disorder and crisis end up if they hit rock bottom? That's a rhetorical question, of course. They all end up in our emergency departments again and again and again. As emergency providers, we're in a perfect position to help fix this problem. We know that taking effective action during a time of crisis in these individuals' lives improves outcomes. But with full waiting rooms and boarded patients, time pressures, our chaotic environment, and really few of us are... Are experts in addiction medicine, with all these things, it's really difficult for us to provide excellent support and long-term follow-up for people with substance use disorder. But we're emergency doctors, right? So why should we care about support and long-term follow-up? Well, we know that support and long-term follow-up improves outcomes. No support, no follow-up, well, that's just bad care and revolving door ED visits. So how can we improve outcomes for these folks from the ED when they're in crisis. And then, how can we maximize the chances of good quality ongoing care so that they don't bounce back to the ED yet again? Well, I have absolutely no clue. But I can tell you who does. Dr. Stephanie Vandenberg, an emergency doctor here in Calgary who's been working aggressively on a program that engages people with lived experience of addiction in crisis. This is a co-designed peer-led support system and we'll get into what that means in a minute. So welcome, Dr. Vandenberg, to EM Cases.
6: Thanks, Anton. Longtime listener, first-time podcaster.
0: <laughs> well, you've got an amazing voice, actually, for podcasting. So that's, you know, you're already ahead of the Future. game. Excellent. Now, this isn't the first time something like this has been successful. In Toronto, the Pathway to Peers program is a partnership between the Schwartz-Reisman Emergency Medicine Institute, which is actually the nonprofit Research and Education Institute that also supports EM cases, so I need to disclose that. So it's it's between them, uh, Stella's Place, which is a youth shelter, and the RBC Foundation. They have youth peer supports in the ED working with youth that have mental health and, and substance use issues. There's been peer support ED programs in North Carolina, Indiana, Washington State, um, and I understand they've had some success too. So for starters, uh, and for the skeptics out there, what outcome measures in particular have peer support programs been shown to improve?
6: When we look at the literature and the experiences of centers across North America including here in Calgary that have engaged people with experiences of lived experience of addiction, we see improvements in two different types of outcomes. So we talk about system level factors, which are those things that we measure and track across the healthcare institution. And then we think about things that are called patient-centered factors, and I'll give you some examples of both. So system-level factors are those ones that we measure that include ED return visits or initial visits and hospital inpatient stays, increased housing stability, decreased substance use, fewer self-reports of anxiety and depression, and fewer interactions with the criminal justice system. And you might ask yourself, why does it matter if we measure how many times people with substance use are coming to our emerge or how many times they're admitted to the hospital? Well, I'll argue that it, has a, it matters in a huge way. So when we compare substance-related hospital stays to a disease process like stroke, for example, substance-related hospital admissions contribute more than those of stroke and heart attack combined. This is in the Canadian healthcare system. When you translate this into cost, Substance use costs each Canadian taxpayer, so each person here in the room today, over $1,000 annually. This is about $46 billion to the system, and 13 billion of those dollars are directly related to healthcare costs. Stroke-related healthcare costs on the flip side are estimated at a mere 3.6 billion per year. Moving from a system perspective to a patient level perspective, peer support programs have been shown to improve patient centered outcomes like feeling safe in the emergency department, feeling heard, feeling understood, gaining a sense of hopefulness and meaning from interactions with healthcare
0: providers. So, there's kind of a whole slew of improved outcomes when peer support workers are employed in the ED and for afterwards. And we'll have references in the show notes if you want to dive deep into that data yourself. You know, I think in Canada, we all recognize the value of things like harm reduction for these people with substance use disorder. And I, I'd hope that in 2022, we're way past the stigma of people with addictions issues you know, and thinking that they, that they do not deserve our stellar care. If there's any listeners out there or any people here who still believe that we shouldn't be employing harm reduction, I don't know if we're ever going to change your minds. So maybe this, this quick hit isn't for you. So let's talk about the how. How do peer support workers or recovery coaches lead to fewer ED visits, decreased substance use, decreased anxiety and depression, et cetera? So what do they actually do in the ED and after the ED visit? Like, what's the sort of mechanism of action, so to speak?
6: To answer that question, I want to tell you a story about the impact that peers have had in and around our emergency departments here in Calgary. I met Anne on um, a busy evening shift at one of the emergency departments in our city and Anne had been brought in by EMS with an opioid overdose. Now the fascinating part of why EMS had responded to her in the first place was that she had been using substances while, while also engaging with this service called the National Opioid Response Service which is a telephone line supported by volunteers across Canada where people who use substances can phone in and it essentially acts as like a virtual consumption service. So the volunteer on, on the end of the line will chat with the person who's about to use or is using a substance. They'll set a predetermined time interval where they'll check in over the phone with this person. The person stays on the line the whole time. And if they don't respond at that predetermined interval of time, the volunteer can initiate a 911 call to that person's address, address, alley, park wherever wherever they're using. So this had happened for Anne. So EMS had responded to a NORS activated call for her. They'd administered Narcan. They'd reversed her overdose. They brought her to the hospital and I met her there. And of course by the time she was in our emerge she wanted to leave. Anne had had told me that she sold sex for drugs. She had recently been evicted from her housing and she was she was using fentanyl on an ongoing basis. And I asked her if she'd be interested in talking to um, a peer with lived experience, and she said yes, she consented. In Calgary, our peers don't work within the walls of our emergency departments, but they are available as a resource to us um, on a next day basis. So they work out of a physical space that is at the Rapid Access Addictions Medicine Clinic downtown, but they can go anywhere. They're mobile, they they move around in the city. So Anne agreed to uh, be contacted by a peer. Because she'd lost her house, she was staying at a shelter in the city. So we discharged her from the emergency department back to her shelter. And the next day, a peer went to the shelter to look for Ann. And they found her. And they connected her with her on a daily basis. They got her connected with housing organization. They accompanied her to her addictions appointments, and she got started on Suboxone. They accompanied her to a woman's recovery program. And they also brought her to Alberta Works so she could apply for income support. And since that time, Anne, Anne hasn't overdosed. She has stable housing and she's actually moved to be closer to her family, which she's reconnected with. And I think this is one of those stories that really highlights why a person with lived experience is so crucial to this role, as opposed to a lot of our other allied health care professionals who work with people with addictions. But I think peers really function as living, breathing models of what recovery looks like. And they meet people where they're at, in this case literally in a shelter in Calgary. And I think that they act as this bridge between the emergency department or or what one of my colleagues, um, the previous executive director of our ESCN, Heather Hare called the connective tissue that connects the people that we see in the emergency department to the various community resources and services in our community.
0: The bridge, the connective tissue. I like that. So, I mean, it, it makes sense that a peer support worker in the emergency department will make the person that's having issues feel better. And then, but it's not only that, it's this ongoing care after the daily follow-ups. Um, I mean, that's an amazing story. They got on Suboxone, they connected with their family. Great. So these peer support programs, I'm sure there's going to be people that are listening at other centers who might be interested in setting up something like this at their center. Before they get into that, how do you know that your peer support program is working? So have you been sort of evaluating its success? Like, what, what are your, we talked about the outcome measures before and that some of the studies out there that have been done already have showed some good promise. How do you evaluate your program?
6: Yeah, so essentially, how do we know that our program's successful or effective? Is is I think what you're asking, and to know how effective the program is, we measure a couple of things. So we we measure the numbers, and we and we measure people's experience with the program. So from a plain numbers point of view, over the two years our program has been running, we've hired four peer workers in Calgary, and they have connected with over 1,500 patients, and. Some of the, so on average they've connected with each of these patients on, on average seven times sometimes upwards of thirty five times for for an individual patient. They receive referrals from our emergency departments throughout the city and also from other clinics, and they in turn have connected people with over twenty one community organizations in in Calgary. Before our peer program existed, when you wrote your referral to the Rapid Access Addictions Medical Clinic or the ODP program only about 20% of those people actually made it to a first appointment. So a first visit for for an addiction service. Since our peer program has been running, we've seen upwards of 80% of those people that are referred on an outpatient basis who have connected with a peer, make it to their first addiction or community service appointment, which which is a massive improvement. And while we're still putting together mortality and return to ED numbers, one emergency department in Rhode Island reported a 95% decrease in return to emergency department visit rates for people who are connected with a peer in their community. The other part of the effectiveness or success for the peer program is the patient experience point of view. And so we capture this using a tool called the Canadian Personal Recovery Outcome Measure or the CPROM tool. And patients have reported incremental improvements in their ability to manage stress. They've reported they experience more supportive relationships and that they feel more confident in their healthcare interactions. And there are centers all over Canada, like you mentioned, Anton, that are reporting the same successes. Dr. Catherine Dong's program with the ARCH team, the Addiction Recovering Community Health team up in Edmonton, and the RBC Pathway Appears, supported by Shremi at Mount Sinai Hospital in Toronto, are all reporting
0: similar outcomes. These people do amazing work. So again, there's going to be other other folks across North America and perhaps even the world that are interested in setting up these kinds of programs. What would you advise other EDs in terms of setting up these programs? What, what were the roadblocks you had? What would you advise if they were trying to get one of these going? Because I'm sure there's issues with cost, there's issues with buy-in, etc.
6: So I would... Advise. (laughs) Find and integrate people with lived experience of addiction into the design of your peer teams so that they become stakeholders in the teams themselves, which is essentially the definition of co-design. Involve the people that you are designing an intervention for in the design of that intervention itself. And we've learned this from global health experiences, we've learned this from the HIV advocacy movement, the Nothing About Us Without Us, that it is so crucial to involve the the patient or the person who's experiencing the challenge um, in the design of the program itself. Secondly, I would say partner with everyone from healthcare team leads, um, members, nurses, physicians, social workers, even as far up the chain as operations leads and hospital executives. One of my mentors said, that if you're not talking about this to everyone at every level, and if people don't understand or grasp the the gap, the challenge, and the solution that you're offering, then it's gonna be very challenging for people to understand why this person with a previous addiction or an ongoing addiction is part of your healthcare team in the first place, and involving that peer in those discussions because they're amazing advocates for themselves when when they're given the opportunity to do so. And then third, you talked about cost. So I think partnering with um, with donors, we've we've had some success with private donations, and then our program itself is specifically funded by the, Cal- the city of Calgary's mental health and addictions initiative um, for the two year for the two years that it's running. Um, and other places have also found success with with private donors too, and RBC, which is very impressive in Toronto. Um, but I think. It's been a it's been a long road, and we've knocked on many doors, and we've been writing grant proposals for over five years to uh, to have these people as part of our healthcare team. So, it's not easy, but man, is it worth it!
0: Sounds good. So, I like that analogy with global EM. Anyone who works in global EM knows that you need to get the locals involved right at the beginning, and if you just try and impose your idea of what will work, it just won't work. I like that analogy. And then, yeah, getting buy-in from everyone. Everyone needs to understand it. All right, you know, I can't imagine a day in the near future when a person with substance use disorder, um, when they're at the very bottom of the pit in crisis, they have nowhere to turn, they end up in REDs, and are put on a path to recovery uh, with a coach by their side. You know, maybe they're put on Suboxone, they're linked up with an addictions clinic with primary care, they get frequent check-ins, and... They might fall off the horse a couple of times, we can expect that, but ultimately many of these patients will recover and have meaningful lives. And that just might be because of these innovative and collaborative programs like you've spearheaded uh, Dr. Vandenberg. So thank you very much for all the work that you do. Dr. Vandenberg had mentioned that in Calgary, their peer support workers are involved after the ED visit for adults with substance use disorder. I wanted to speak to the fine folks at Mount Sinai in Toronto about their peer support program that involves peer support workers within the ED for young patients, including teenagers with any mental health issues during the patient's visit. Dr. Bug Borgenvog is an EM doc at Mount Sinai Health Sciences Hospital in Toronto, and an EM researcher and the director of SREMI, the Schwartz Reisman Emergency Medicine Institute. Full disclosure here, the nonprofit institute that supports EM cases. You might remember Dr. Borgenvog from our episode on alcohol withdrawal. Welcome, Dr. Borgenvog.
7: Nice to see you again, Anton.
0: Excellent. And also from Mount Sinai, Ms. Christine Bradshaw, social worker there in the emergency department. Welcome to EM Cases, Christine.
8: Thank you. Looking forward to it.
0: Can you tell us a little bit about your uh, background professionally?
8: Sure. I've uh, been an emergency department social worker at Mount Sinai for a very long time and also worked as a crisis worker at another emergent. So I'm pretty pretty aware of what we can and can't do in an emergency department and the kind of patients that come in. And, and I'm pretty passionate about helping people with mental health and substance use to have a fulfilling life. Yeah.
0: And so... What was your involvement in establishing the peer support program at Mount Sinai and Merge?
8: Yeah, so I I also have the wonderful opportunity to be the program manager for the Pathway to Peer program.
0: Great. Yeah, let's talk a little bit more about sort of a general description of your program and how it came about. So Dr. Borgenvog, can you just describe for us the nuts and bolts of how your peer support program works for our listeners and, and what the impetus was to develop the program in the first place?
7: So maybe I'll start with the impetus for for developing the program, you know, similar to Dr. Vandenberg's experience and every other physician you likely speak to, you know, patients with mental health and addiction problems are frequent visitors to the emergency department. And, you know, historically, we really haven't had an awful lot that we can do or offer to help them. So there's a mismatch between their needs and expectations and the kind of care that we can provide. And there's been a significant uptick, perhaps 100% increase in the number of young adults presenting to emergency departments across Canada over the last seven or eight years. And our emergency department in particular is located squarely between the campus of the University of Toronto and Ryerson University. So we have a very large group or community of young people around us. Who are entering into a very transformative time in their life, which they're frequently under a lot of stress. So we see a lot of these folks and we knew that we were doing a terrible job trying to help them. And so we decided that we should try and do something else that would be better. What actually happened was I had a research assistant who was working for me one summer and she was telling me about her mother's work. Her mother was the executive director at the time of a community organization called Stella's Place. And Stella's Place is one of the preeminent places providing and training peer support workers. And so we approached Stella's Place to find out more. And what happened was we've developed this model where we have this community partnership. So our goal really was to try and take those peer support learnings and apply them within the context of an emergency department and be able to offer our patients something new. I'll just add that one thing that we've heard loud and clear from young people who do use emergency departments is that they often feel they got nothing out of the visit. You know, they come in, they wait for hours. We don't have to put them on a form or hospitalize them and we discharge them. And the feeling is that we didn't do any any really thing for them when they were there. And so any suggestions we have for follow-up, they kind of take with a grain of salt. So the real impetus for this program is to try and find a way to build trust with those patients to have them understand that we're listening and we really are trying to help them, and to try and develop something that we can offer them uh, while they're actually in the emergency department.
0: Fantastic. And of course, when anyone's having a crisis of any kind, they always end up in the emergency department. And so it's the obvious place to try and help these people. Just thinking about the listeners who are thinking, well, this doesn't really sound like emergency medicine. I think that- this is really one of the only opportunities we do have to help these people, because otherwise no one's helping them. So while the Calgary program supports adults in substance use disorder after the ED visit, the Sinai Toronto program supports teenagers and young adults with any mental health issues during and after their ED visit. So it's a little bit different. And as we're all aware, and as Dr. Borgenvog alluded to, we're seeing way more teenagers with mental health issues, especially during the COVID pandemic. I want to talk a little bit about training for the peer support workers, because I imagine that these young peer support workers have little to no experience being peer support workers before they start in your program. What kind of training do they receive for their specific roles? Like, I guess we can talk about their roles of what they actually do, and then how do you train them for it? Because I imagine you know an 18-year-old boy... Who's had, say, problems with generalized anxiety disorder and benzodiazepines substance use disorder is going to have a hard time trying to be a peer support worker without some really good training and support.
7: So the most important thing about our peer support program is that all of the people we hire have lived experience, and they don't have to necessarily declare that with every patient. but it's really important that when our patients look at another young adult, that they understand that they have walked down the same road and faced some of the challenges, whether they're substance use related, whether they're mental health related, whether they've had problems being homeless or other things. So the program really starts with identifying people who have had those challenges and then are in recovery. And they have to be well enough into recovery for us to feel confident that we're not going to expose them to something that is going to derail their own health. With regards to the specific training, maybe I'll, I'll just uh, pass that one over to Christine, but we've built on the peer support training and the principles of peer support as enunciated by Peer Support Canada and as known by our partners at Stella's Place. And then we've added on a whole emergency department component to that.
8: So they get hired, they do the hospital onboarding, and then they have eight sessions of specific peer support training in the emergency department.
7: One of the key features of this program that I think is really important, at least from our point of view, is that these people that, that we've hired work for Mount Sinai Hospital. They're covered by hospital insurance. They understand and abide by all the rules and regulations around privacy and confidentiality. They have access to medical records. They document their interactions. It becomes part of the electronic medical record so that if that person ever comes back, it can be referred back to. That's quite unique compared to other places where, for example, peers come in from outside organizations and sort of try and fit in. All of our staff know our peer support workers. The nurses know them very well. They're part of the team, they feel part of the team, and that really creates, I think, a real close sense of community for them in particular, and they know that that we're looking out for them as well, and we'll try and watch over and make sure that they don't enter into any uh, dangerous or uncomfortable situations.
0: Okay. So essentially they're performing non-clinical work, but they're fully integrated into the ED team. That's incredible.
7: The most important thing, and I'm so, so pleased with our institution that when we explain this, like all the way up the chain of command to the hospital CEO, everybody sees the wisdom of being able to provide something like this for our patients. And we have complete buy-in from the entire hospital administration. It's hard to do that if you don't have All of the hospital administration helping you come up with a reporting structure for the administration part and then a clinical reporting structure and an accountability piece.
0: That sounds in line with what Dr. Vanderberg said about needing buy-in all the way up to the CEO. All right, let's talk about support for the peer support workers. (laughs) So throwing a teenager with a history of substance use disorder, for example, into a chaotic ED environment as a peer support worker... Must be anxiety-provoking for them, just to say the least. How do you support the peer support worker in the hectic environment in the ED?
8: Yeah, and and that's a great question because uh, you you really don't want to have them have a setback, but you want to create an environment that they feel supported so they can do the care they do. So with our program, they only work when a social worker is on shift as well, so that they have an ally to go to should something come up that triggers them or they're uncomfortable with.
0: All right. Yeah. I guess the people doing the supporting need to support themselves. (laughs) these (laughs)
7: These are lay people and, you know, they see people being chemically sedated. They see people being restrained. They, they see very uncomfortable things. And even if they're not seeing that in the moment, we have had instances, you know, it's a big hospital with people with serious problems. We've had people who've come in with mental health problems and overdoses who've died that our peer support workers have seen. They need help processing that because they have maybe never seen that before. So, I use the phrase ecosystem. There's a whole ecosystem around this program. There's our social workers who are there. There's the emerge staff and nurses who are there and they have outside people that they can have their community or practice with as well. So we need to have trust and open lines of communication so they can share with us how they feel.
0: Absolutely. We talked about measurable outcomes of peer support workers with Dr. Vanderberg. I want to back up a bit and get a sense of the theory behind peer support workers. So, Ms. Bracho, what's the theory behind why peer support workers are effective in the first place?
8: So, I think the general lens that that forms our peer support program would be around the introduction of trauma-informed care to practice, right? So that's building Safety, choice, collaboration, trustworthiness, and empowerment. I think the basis of peer support is doing that, right? It's giving patients an opportunity to have a conversation with someone who's not on this hierarchy of nurse, doctor, clinical, social worker. So I I think it's an opportunity to build that inclusive environment, and that sort of forms the background for peer support.
0: All right. So there's obvious advantages to the patients that we're seeing in the emergency department for peer support workers. What about the advantages to the peer support workers themselves? Mm. Are there any advantages to them? I mean, I'm trying to imagine why they would want to volunteer to do this. And then, you know, as Dr. Borgenvog was alluding to, seeing all these terrible things like people dying from mental health problems in the emergency department, what's the benefit for them?
7: It's actually, it was my greatest surprise of the program. We've had a, a peer sport worker with us who uh, has lived experience with substance use disorder. And I thought that it was going to be triggering for her to be around folks with these same problems. In fact, it was the exact opposite. Every day she would tell me, every time I saw her, she would tell me how much she loved her job and how much it helps her appreciate how far into her own recovery she is, how strong she is, and how she's made it through all these things, and I think what happens really is that their interactions give them strength. You know, there's some there's some very unpleasant things that happen, but for for the most part, um, I think they find this work very rewarding for that reason.
8: I might add too that, you know, we all live in a very stigmatizing world and generalizations do arise and people's assumptions come up around people. And I think what is beautiful for me and as Bug was talking about is that the peers who feel they were once stigmatized for their substance use, right? It's your choice that you're using. They're actually now sought after in an emergency department as a profession, right? So they're able to use what they were once judged for and turned it around to be empowering and helping the people that are in front of them. So it helps them in their recovery, but it also helps change the narratives in the emergency department and change people's discourses. You can see that people don't use stigmatizing language as much when the peer support workers is around.
0: Fantastic. I imagine there's some listeners out there who might want to talk to their admin and their emergency departments about starting a program like this. If you could give us one or two of the most important tips to those people who want to start their own programs, what, what tips would you give them?
8: We did a needs assessment, so we created the program based on the needs of our own eMERGE. All those pieces really ensure buy-in, right? And then we work with people like the social work department to ensure no role blurring and, you know, an allyship can be created right there. And having the peers be validated as a profession and not a volunteer position and paid for by the hospital so that that also validates their position in the eMERGE. And then, of course, The takeaway of having training and access to someone when they need it, such as a designated time manager, I I think that's important too.
0: Just to review there, there's needs assessment, which is a great idea to get the ball rolling on this, getting buy-in from the higher-ups, developing a training program, and getting some funding to pay these people for the great work that they're doing are just some of the things that are required before you even think about starting a program like this. Dr. Borgenvog, anything else?
7: I was just gonna say the one thing we haven't mentioned about the program, we operate a research institute. We started this program because we think it's important, but our real mission is to evaluate it, to learn from the feedback we get from the participants, you know, the patients, the peers, our eMERGE staff, tailor the program to provide the best benefit that we can. We presented this to the RBC Foundation as what it is, is a research project evaluating a program. And that's how we got the funding for this. The funding doesn't come through the Ministry of Health and it doesn't come from the hospital. This is money that we went out and got. I think nothing happens without some money, but finding, you know, enlisting the help of your foundation to assist you with finding a donor who'd be willing to fund a pilot project to see whether or not this could work and whether it's feasible in your hospital is probably the single biggest advice I would give.
0: I understand. You had mentioned evaluation. Uh, and Dr. Vandenberg had talked about some outcome measures and what's been done so far. What can we look forward to in terms of what you're actually measuring and what outcomes we're going to be seeing in the future, hopefully?
7: So we've we've completed an evaluation by our staff and we've learned that the program is extremely popular with them and that will be published. We're in the process of collecting data from our participants. We've asked them to be surveyed. We've got a, a qualitative uh, methodologist who's working with us, and then we're also going to track these people's health metrics, and we're going to determine: is there any impact on hospital revisit rates? Are there other important, meaningful outcomes that would be relevant to the healthcare system? And what we want to do is create a picture that we that we feel will be compelling enough that we'll be able to apply for ministry funding for the program. It, it costs a lot less money. To put a peer support program into place, it can be done relatively quickly compared to you know training psychiatrists and, and social workers to do this kind of work for a much lower expense and in a much faster time. So we're hoping that we can make a compelling case to the Ministry of Health that this is a program that is helpful, and it's doing something to address one of their top priorities, which are mental health problems and addiction problems. Together, those two things are the number two reason for patients being admitted to a hospital across Canada.
0: All right, well, best of luck with all the research, and hopefully we'll be able to get some more funding, not only for your program, but hopefully that'll be an example for other programs across North America to start their programs. And who knows, maybe in 10 years from now, we can sit down again and talk about details of outcome measures, whether it's qualitative or quantitative in a decade from now, it might become standard care to have peer support workers in emergency departments across the continent. So thank you very much for both your insights and description of your incredible program.
7: Thanks so much for having us, Anton.